morning, reading from Leviticus, um, Leviticus 16. Thus, say, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make the atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all of the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions, all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Thank you, Matt, for reading. Uh, what Matt just read is from a section of, of Leviticus, and if you've ever... Um, uh, if you've ever read through the Bible in a year, I think I've talked before about how that's one of the tougher spots probably to get through, where a spot that, that, that probably trips many of us up as we begin our idealistic plans uh, to read the Bible through a year. I do encourage you to, to, to do that. Uh, those chapters of Leviticus are difficult because they're full of, of sacrifices. They're full of things that, are, that feel pretty foreign to us in our uh, day and age, but that Chapter Leviticus 16 is about a ritual that was at the center of the, the life of worship of the people of Israel. Uh, Leviticus leads up to, when it talks about the sacrifices, it leads up to this ritual where the high priest would go in to the most holy place. This only happened once a year. And the idea here was that, that uh, the encampment of Israel had at its center the tabernacle, and then in the center of that tabernacle was the most holy place. And, and what Matt just read described just a part of the ritual. I didn't have Matt read the whole chapter because that would have uh, taken a, a little while, but the, and Matt's happy about that. But the, uh, but the, the, the whole ritual was, was this, uh, this approach, this approach to the center, this approach uh, to God's presence. The author of Hebrews, this morning, uh, as he's been talking about the ways, all the ways that Jesus is better, he's, he said that Jesus is better than, than Moses, this great prophet in the Old Testament. He said he's, he's better than even the angels in the early chapters we saw. And, and in the last few chapters, we've seen that, that, that Jesus provides something better and more effective than any of the Old Testament priests could have provided. And, and, and last week we saw that Jesus provides a better covenant. The, the author of Hebrews firmly believes, if nothing else, that, that Jesus Christ is better than anything else available to us. That, 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 that he's not only better, he's the only effective way 
of salvation. He's the only effective way of life. Everything else is, is ineffective. There's nothing else that can, that can lead us to life and satisfaction. This morning, the author of Hebrews does something interesting. Uh, all, this, all this talk about, about Jesus being better than the Old Covenant, than, than, than the things that happened in the Old Testament. The author takes 10 verses this morning and talks about the Old Covenant system. He pauses and he, and he takes these 10 verses to, to, to take just a minute and look back at, at what, there, what, what in the Old Covenant, what in those, those, uh, those long ritual passages in Leviticus and other places, what, what was it about those things that, that made it important for God to give those words to Israel in the first place, if they were ineffective, if they weren't able to actually cleanse sins. And what he's going to do for us this morning is he's going to show us how these things uh, point us and teach us about who God is, and, and ultimately, they teach us about what Christ has done for us in, in, a, in a really glorious way. So we're going to read uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 1 to 14 and then we'll, we'll dive in for a few moments uh, to, to how the, the author uh, shows us, holds out what Christ has done for us. This is God's word, and as we come to it, let me once more uh, uh, pray for the Lord's help. Lord, Lord we, we come to your word that you say is a living and active sword that pierces our hearts. So Lord, help us this morning as we come, not to, not to put up walls, not to try and hide ourselves from you, but let us, let us be open, let us, let us be cut by your word that you might heal us. You might get inside of us and heal us of our deep-seated brokenness. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. This is God's word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared 
as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What I want to do this morning is I want to spend a few moments in these first 10 verses looking at, at why the author thinks it's important, it's still important to look back at these regulations that were given, these rules that were given, these rituals that were given in the Old Testament. And then I want to spend a few moments looking at verses 11 to 14 and look at how Christ has uh, has been held up by the, author, by the author of Hebrews as someone who fulfills all these things, who, who is our source of life. Why does he include, though, first, these, this, these ten verses about the Old Covenant, about these Old Testament rituals? He sees something here that's significant for you and me. The author sees something in uh, these books of Exodus and Leviticus that he goes back to here that's significant for you and me, something that ultimately will teach us about our Lord Jesus, this one who he keeps saying is better, is better. You know, the Old Testament system of worship it was, was complex. Uh, and, and the key word that the author uses to characterize this complex system of worship where, where, uh, where God commanded his people to come back over and over to the tent and to keep offering sacrifices is this word, regulations. It shows up twice. Did you notice that? Verse 1 and verse 10. In verse 1, he says, the, old, the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And then in verse 10, once again, he says, these things deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And by that, he means the time that, that Jesus came. There are, there are these regulations in the Old Covenant, that are, that are essential, that are important, that are fundamental to the system of worship that, that the Israelites had to maintain. And I want you to notice three things, three areas of focus of these regulations that the author points out to us. The first is this, that, that they need a place. They need a place where the holy God can meet with his people. There has to be a, a space where this interaction, this relationship can happen. Notice in verse 1 to 5 how he talks about this. He talks about the regulations for worship in an early earthly place of holiness. And, he, and then he talks about this tent, the tabernacle, which God commanded his people to build. It's a, a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. The author highlights just some of the things that God commanded his people to build and to make and to put in this space. And, and if you were in that ancient tabernacle, you, you might walk in. Again, it's at the center of the encampment of the people of Israel as they're moving around in the desert, and then they would settle in certain places. And as you would walk up to it, you might walk into a courtyard. In the courtyard, you'd find uh, an altar where, where sin offerings were, were made. 
And you, you would find different wash basins uh, for the priests to, to be able to cleanse themselves and also to, to cleanse the people from various things like skin diseases that would, that would come up. But then there was the, the actual structure of the tabernacle itself. And in the tabernacle, there were two rooms. And that's what the author kind of emphasizes in, in these first five verses. He says there's two rooms. The first one is called the, the holy place. The author just, just uses the word, the holies. Is this place of holiness that the priests would come in and out of, in and out of, to do what they had to do on behalf of the people. But then there was a, then there was a second room. A second room called the most holy place, the holy of holies, or, or even the holies of holies, literally. This, this, this second room that, that no one was allowed access to. That once a year, once a year, a priest was allowed to go inside. So you have a place, a space, in which the holy God is, uh, is able to, to live amongst his people, but there is no, no access. No access outside of that one time every year. The emphasis for, for the author of Hebrews, and the emphasis if you read through the book of Leviticus, is on, really on, on two things. Uh, throughout, it's, it's on holiness and glory. Holiness and glory. This space is all about holiness and glory. As you enter progressively into each layer, two things are, are absolutely evident as you read the book of Leviticus. You get increasing levels of holiness and purity, and you also get increasing levels of glory. The idea of, of, of smoke that would or a cloud that would come and, and, and settle in that most holy place, which the prophet Ezekiel says uh, later on when, the, when he's standing before the temple, he says the glory left. And we never, we never hear in the Bible about the glory coming back. Now there's a, an immediate problem with this, and the author points this out for us. There's an immediate problem with this, that... that this idea of holiness and glory in this ancient building. The problem is this. The, the building is meant to be a place of holiness and glory, but, but there's an issue because it's earthly. The author uses the word cosmicon. Uh, it's, it's earthy. It's made out of worldly stuff. It's made out of earthy material. So, so while it's supposed to be a place of holiness and glory, it's... it's attached to the earth. It's here on earth. And it's made by people who are fallen people. Now, if there's one thing that the book of Exodus emphasizes over and over and over again, it's that they made it exactly according to how God commanded it. It was very important that they made it exactly how God commanded them to make it, but still it was made by fallible, limited, sinful people. And it was made out of stuff that, that participates in the Corruption of this world, just like everything else, it wastes away at some point. At some point, it will wear out. So there's this contrast that the author highlights for us. The author says, on the one hand, this place is meant to be this place of holiness and glory, uh, unequaled anywhere else. And on the other hand, it's made out of just the same stuff as everything else. It's earthly. 
It's made by human hands. So the structure that's meant to resolve this divide between heaven and earth, (laughs) it's insufficient. It's insufficient because it's made out of earthy stuff. It's made out of of decaying material. The author shows us from the get-go that it's meant to be a glorious place, but it's not meant to be a sufficient place. Nevertheless, there is a, a holiness and a glory there. And the author says this. He says, and I think he highlights this, and the book of Leviticus highlights this, because of the fact that we are meant to see from the very beginning of Scripture that we have a fundamental problem, and that that fundamental problem is we need relationship with a holy God, but that relationship can't happen because of our own unholiness and our own uncleanness. That God is so utterly unique. Exodus 15 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. But he's also morally perfect. He's pure. So you remember when Isaiah was, was standing before the throne room of the holy God, and, and immediately he recognized his, his need for atonement. He recognizes, he said, I'm a man who has sinful lips, and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. That's his immediate response to being in the presence of one who is holy. We're meant to see this throughout the Old Testament, that that God is absolutely holy and that he's absolutely glorious. There's a gloriousness about this space that he's established. The author highlights just some of the the pieces of of pure gold, uh, uh, different accoutrements and other things in, in in this space. And he even says in verse 5, he says, I don't have time to tell you about it all. (laughs) And thank goodness. Uh, (laughs) But you can go back and read that. Read about all that in Exodus and Leviticus. But he highlights just some of these glorious, glorious things. It's all meant to be glorious. But, but, But here's the thing. The Old Testament highlights over and over this holiness of God and this problem that we don't have access to God. But another thing that Old Testament highlights is that God wants his people to be on the move in a certain direction. And and that movement is towards his holiness. That movement is, is towards that place where he dwells. And this is what the author highlights next. The author just uh, doesn't just tell us that there's a place that, that, the, that the Old Covenant gave us uh, or showed us the importance of a place where, where God and man can interact, but he also shows us uh, the need for an approach into this place, an approach into this space. Look at verses 6 and 7. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. There's an approach there. They've, they've come to the holy place. They're not at the center, but they're coming closer. They're performing their ritual duties, but in the the second, that's the second section, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. There's a a movement in the old covenant system of worship that our author highlights here. Movement towards God. There's something amazing here. Even in this old covenant system, even in this insufficient system, this, this system that was never meant to, to, to provide full life and salvation, it was always meant to point us forward to Jesus. Even in this system, we can see the heart of God. 
we can see that the heart of God is always for his people to come and approach him and to be in relationship with him. It's not, it's not for separation. The heart of God is that we might know him, that we might truly, intimately know him, that we as an unholy people might be able to approach But there's a third thing that the author shows us here. It's not just the need for a space. There's not just the need for an approach, but there's a need for a sacrifice. He highlights the fact that the, the priest, even the high priest, even, even that approach that, 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 that God commanded, where he gave access once a year, even just that once a year access, that involved all this ritual, all this cleansing that had to happen, all this prayer that had to happen in, in all of this, this glory, even that couldn't happen without the shedding of blood. Even that couldn't happen unless something died. And the problems here are, are once again evident. The author shows how the priests do this again and again and again. They go in and they offer sacrifices year after year after year. And then the, the priests who go into the holy place, they, they also offer sacrifices day after day after day to atone for the sins of the people. But it's never, it's never sufficient. It has to keep happening. You go back next year, you... As we saw in chapter 7, you might have to get a new priest because your old priest died. There's never an eternal solution. There's never a full solution here in this system. And, and in this need for a sacrifice, it's, it's really where we come to the crux of the issue. We are stuck on the outside looking in. Just like ancient Israel in their encampments, they're they're stuck on the outside looking in. They're, they don't have an ability to approach. And the, and the reason that they don't have an ability to approach is this problem. It's the problem of guilt. Problem of guilt. And I want you to see here two, two aspects of guilt that our author sees as completely interconnected. There, first, first, there's, there's the, the guilt that we feel. There's a subjective aspect of guilt. See how the, the author highlights this uh, in verses... Uh, 8 and 9. He says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Again, they're, they're, we're on the outside looking in, but then notice what he says next. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. These, these offerings are happening, these sacrifices are happening, but they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. My own feeling of guilt can't be assuaged through this system. I, I, I will continue to experience guilt because I'm going to continue to experience sin. And not only because I'm going to continue to experience sin, but because my sins that I've already committed can't fully be, uh, can't fully be atoned for by these sacrifices of these animals. There's a, there's a temporary sort of solution here, but... but but my conscience can't be cleansed. There's something external can happen for me, but the internal, the deep sense of guilt that I feel 
can't be taken away by this system. But in our day and age, this idea of guilt, this idea of a feeling of guilt is really uh, kind of maligned. It's, it's not seen as, as proper for us as human beings. We tend in our day and age, if, if we were to go uh, to somebody and talk to them about our feelings of guilt, it, it, depending on who we talk to, it, it's probably fairly likely that they might uh, encourage us to uh, well, think about those things as just a reflection of the social pressures around you. That your problem, your problem of guilt can be fixed and helped by not putting so much stock in these outside pressures that you feel. Or, or they might tell you that this is uh, an, an internal issue that you need to, to work through and move past this internal feeling of guilt that you have. Nietzsche famously saw, uh, great, you know, well, the philosopher Nietzsche famously saw uh, guilt as a deep sickness caused by a man coming under the influence of other people, uh, under the influence of society. It's a sickness within us, Nietzsche said. But as we look around, and I think as we, as we see around us a world that seems to be more free from the, the, the pressures of religious institutions and social, these sort of social constructs that people point to as, as the things that caused our guilt in the first place, caused this problem for us in the first place, the more free we feel, the, I don't think the, 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 uh, the guilt goes away. We continue to feel a sense of something being wrong. And we see this not only in... in, in in, in the actual guilt that, that people continue to feel, even, even as they, they, they get free from the idea that they ought to conform to something outside of themselves, uh, as our modern uh, world uh, preaches, that, that, that we ought to get free of those things. And we talked in the Sunday study this morning about how, how maybe there's some positive and negative aspects of that cultural move. Uh, but but as, as we feel this freedom from, from societal expectations, we continue to feel that internal sense of guilt. We see this both in the ways that we, that we recognize the guilt inside of us. Uh, you might think of, if you've read uh, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's famous novel, character Raskolnikov, who feels that sense of guilt and conscience throughout the book because he's, he's murdered somebody and he sees himself as, as somebody who's an extraordinary human being, but he feels this, he can never quite escape that feeling of conscience, that, that, those pangs of guilt. It, but we also feel it, I think, in, in ways that we don't even notice. And, and Tim Keller points this out. That there's this subtle sense of, of guilt that we feel that we don't even recognize as guilt. Why, why do we work so hard? And we say at some point that we're going to rest, but we don't. Or, or why are we so afraid to confront people when we should be confronting them? Or why are we all the time confronting people but maybe we shouldn't be. Why, why, do, we, why do we push ourselves to, to produce a certain image? And we get so angry or frustrated when someone in our family or someone online threatens that image of ourselves. 
because we feel this sense that something is not right with us. We feel this sense of, of guilt and not even recognize it as such. There's a, a story about Arthur Conan Doyle. I don't know if it's a true story. I think it may be an urban legend, but, but, but the point still remains. Uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, was sitting around his, with a group of, of friends, and they were talking with one another, and they realized that every single one of them had skeletons in the closet. And they, and they started talking about someone, a, a mutual acquaintance that they all knew that seemed to have everything together. They couldn't think of one skeleton in the closet that they knew of for this individual. So they sent him a telegram, like an ancient DM for you young people. Uh, it said this, all is discovered, flee at once. And the next day he left the country and never came back. You see that? I think many of us are afraid. Afraid that all would be discovered. And someone came to you and said, I know, I know everything. I know all of it. And how terrifying would that be? We can't escape the guilt. Here's what the author says. That the problem is not just with this feeling of guilt that we can't escape. The problem is not just with this, this conscience that can't be cleansed. The problem is that we are actually guilty. The problem is not only that we feel guilty, that we have subjective guilt. The problem is that we are objectively guilty. So when... The priest comes into God's presence. He cannot come unless there's a payment that is made, unless blood is shed. The author shows us that our problem is, is way, way worse than a misplaced feeling. Our problem is that we are rightly under judgment. And, and, and friends, this is the opposite of what the world often tells us to, to think about our guilt in the way that the world often tells us to deal with our guilt. Uh, but this is what Christianity leads us to see. It's that those feelings of guilt are there because they correspond with a reality. That I am guilty. The things that I have done have actually hurt other people and ultimately have actually been rebellion against my Creator. We are actually guilty, and, and, and it's when we come to realize this, I want you to see that the author shows us in verses 11 to 14 that, that, that this is where we can actually find freedom. The world will tell us that this is where we're just conforming to a societal expectation or, or you know, don't give in to that feeling of guilt, but no, the author shows us that it's when we recognize this that we can find freedom in the one who has absolved our guilt. Let's look at verses 11 to 14 for just a moment. It starts with this word, but. But is one of the most wonderful words throughout Scripture. All of these things that, that could not atone for your sins, that could not do anything for you, but, but God has done something. Notice how the author shows us that the, the, the very things he's, he's just shown to be essential needs addressed in the Old Covenant, they couldn't be sufficiently solved by that system, are solved by the person of Jesus Christ. First, the right space 
is identified. It is when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. This is the same word he's just used to talk about the the holy place or the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. He's come in. And he stays. The high priest could go in once a year, but, but Jesus Christ has gone into the, the right place. Not the place that was built by decay, or of decaying matter by sinful people, but he's gone into the very presence of God. And that's where he is. That's where he remains. Second, there's, a, there's an approach. He entered. He entered once for all, and he's there at his death in, in the Gospels, they, they talk about how the cur- curtain was torn from the top to bottom. That's the curtain that this author has just talked about, which divided the holy place from the most holy place. And at Jesus' death, at his moment of atoning for our sins, that curtain was torn in two. So we who were on the outside looking in now have access. Because Jesus Christ has gone in. He's there. But third, there's a sacrifice. And this is what the author shows us. It's not a sacrifice, not the blood of goats and calves, but it's his own blood. All of these sacrifices of, of animals in the Old Testament, a, a, a death had to violently occur in order to atone for guilt. And, and we see that, that, that Jesus Christ doesn't bring an animal on our behalf. What he brings is himself. There's, there's this phrase the author uses here, which can be a bit confusing. In verse 14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? And, and, and uh, there's a scholar, D.A. Carson, who argues that, that this phrase is not talking about the Holy Spirit here. What the author is saying here is that this is, this is part of what he's highlighting is that this is part of the eternal plan of God for Christ to offer himself. It is the eternal spirit, the eternal plan, the eternal will of God that Christ has, has offered himself on our behalf. It's not something that, that Christ just did on a whim. And, and, and here's the contrast. Notice the contrast. Animal, an animal never did that. An animal never decided to go to the altar for you. An animal was never able by its own will to, to go, but, but Christ, perfect one, the eternal one who became man, he went intentionally for you to his death. And he is the perfect sacrifice. All of this, the author says, results in an eternal redemption. Redemption isn't a word we use very much in our, in our society, uh, but it was, a normal, it was normal economic language. It was normal language of that time that, that, that a, a, someone might get themselves into trouble, into financial trouble, get themselves into debt, and they, and they would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off that debt or maybe sell some family members into slavery. And, the, and, and a family member could come redeem that person. They could come buy them back out of slavery in this, this, in this ancient sort of system. Now, there are different forms of slavery, but that one particular economic sort of slavery was something that the word redemption was used for. 
A family member could come buy you back out of slavery, even though you got yourself into financial trouble. And this, and this is what the author says. He uses language that everybody would have recognized as, as this is what Christ has done for you. He has bought you back. You were a slave to your sins, a slave to yourself. And, and the feelings of guilt could never be solved, could never go away, but here's what Jesus has done. He has come and he has gone into the right place. He has made the right approach. He has offered the right sacrifice so that you could be bought back. And here's what the author tells us. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That guilt that I could never get away from, friends. That guilt that you can never get away from. Both the feeling of guilt and the actual guilt. It says it is purified through what Jesus Christ has done. An old hymn writer put it this way. It says, and she said, enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You and I have offered to us conscience that's actually cleansed. We will never, never be able to work ourselves to a clean conscience. And the author calls this even dead works. He saves you from these dead works of trying to earn a clean conscience before God. You will never get away from that feeling of guilt until you go to the one who has given himself as a sacrifice for your guilt and who is able to give you a clean, a cleansed conscience. Who is able to pay for all of your sins because your guilt has been taken. Do you have this conscience? Have you, ha, have you felt this, this cleansing of your own guilt? Have you seen how the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for your own sins and have you clung to him in faith? If you don't, you will keep going to other things. You will keep going to other things and they will offer, just like the old covenant system did, some moments of external satisfaction. But this is the only place, the only place where you can find an actual salvation from the deepest parts of your soul that are lost. This is the only place. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the one who stands in the very presence of God on your behalf. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we hear your word, and as we think on and reflect on our own sense of, of guilt, pray that you would help us, help us to see what you have done. Not a work that you've just begun to do in our lives that we need to finish or complete, but a work that you have completed, Lord. You said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. 
And now you're making us not into people who, who have to perform these works in order to gain favor before you, but you're making us into people who look more and more like you, Jesus, who are able now to participate in the life that you give and help us to live in that freedom. Not as people who have to earn something before you or who have to cleanse our own consciences. Lord, help us. Help us to trust. And we so often struggle to do this, Lord. We need, we need you. We need your help. Help us to look to you. Lord, help us to be a people of cleansed consciences that go out in the power of your gospel. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.